The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. Do you know that 13 different parties won seats in the Israeli parliament after the last election? We'll try to sort it out right here today on Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Yeah, you have your scorecards ready? Uh, Are you ready to sort out what happened in the Israeli elections? The fourth set of national elections in the last two years. Think think of that. Think of all the emotion, all the intensity, all the difficulty, all the challenge, all the national upheaval, all the money spent, the advertising, the energy invested. Four times in two years. And the outcome remains basically... Inconclusive. Welcome, friends, to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. This is Michael Brown. Delighted to be with you. And on Thursdays, if you're just tuning in for the first time, we we focus on Jewish-related subjects, on Israel today, on Judaism and tradition, on Jewish background to the New Testament, on prophecies from the Scripture about the Messiah, those kinds of things. If it relates broadly in any way to Judaism, Jewish people, Israel today— That's what we focus on on Thursdays as believers, followers of Jesus, Yeshua, who believe salvation is found only in him and through him for both Jew and Gentile. So if you have any Jewish-related question of any kind, or if you're a Jewish listener and you differ with some of our positions, by all means, give us a call, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884. Okay, so we focus on the elections first. In order to form a government in Israel, you need to have 61 out of the 120 seats in the Knesset, the parliament, all right? So just picture Congress in America, we have have 100 seats, 120 in the Knesset. You don't have the equivalent of the the Senate and the House in terms of, of a parallel, so 100 seats in the Senate and then all of the seats in the House. You just have the 120 seats in the parliament, the Knesset. You say, okay, so whichever candidate wins a majority, they, they're going to actually don't vote for candidates, you vote for parties, even though in certain cases the candidate is widely associated with the party. Ultimately, you vote for a party, not for a candidate. You say, okay, so the party that gets enough seats, so if it's the Republican Party, the equivalent of that, they get 70 seats and the Democrats get 50, or the reverse, then you have your government. The problem is you don't just have a two-party system. In terms of votes this year, and seats that were won. You have to have a minimum amount of votes to get at least four seats in the Knesset. Otherwise, you don't count. Over 20 different parties ran for seats in the Knesset in this election. Over 20. 13 different parties won seats. Benjamin Netanyahu's party, Likud, was far and away the biggest winner with 30 seats, but that's down from 36 seats in last year's elections a year ago the 2020 elections in Israel. So his party dropped from 36 down to 30, but you got to get to 61 and he's only at 30. All right, let's put up a chart from the Jerusalem Post and let's take a look at where things stand today. So there were still some votes being counted. There were 450,000 double sealed ballots that came in. That's military, people overseas, 
COVID-related issues that, that hindered voting. So those are still being counted, but it seems that nothing will change in terms of the overall outcome. So Likud ends up with 30 seats. If you go down to Yesh Atid, which means there is a future led by Yair Lapid, up-and-coming uh, Israeli political leader, they got second place with only 17. Uh, it's, it's very between 17 and 18 in the counting. If, if you look, blue and white got eight, eight seats, but they were even or slightly ahead of Likud in the last election. They took a, a massive drop from 36, 37 down to, to eight. So here are all the different parties, how it breaks down. Likud, 30. New Hope, six. And I'm going to tell you which each party stands for in a moment. Yamina, seven. Religious Zionist, six. United Torah Judaism, seven. Shas, nine. Israel Beitenu, which is Israel, our home, seven. Blue and white, eight. Yeshatid, 17. Meretz, six. Labor, seven. Joint list, six. Ra'am, or UAL, seven, uh, four. Those last two being Arab parties, and the last one being Islamist, and would basically be the equivalent to the Muslim Brotherhood today. And out of the Muslim Brotherhood came most of the major radical Islamist organizations in the world today. <clears throat> All right, so let's, let's break this down. I have an article. It's, it's on our website, sdrbrown.org, or, or on stream.org. Let's break this down and tell you which party is which. Now, you see, to form the coalition, you need to get 61 seats. So who can Likud work with? Who can Netanyahu recruit to be part of his coalition? And can he get to 61? All right, so let's just break this down. Blue and white is centrist. Most Israeli parties lean to the right. There are only a few that really lean strongly to the left. Most lean towards the right, and then some are more right-wing, some are even extreme right wing. Those would be the ultra-religious parties in particular. Some are more strongly nationalistic than others. Some hold to a two-state solution with Palestinians. There are different perspectives. But again, 13 different parties, as you just saw from that chart, 13 different parties now have seats in the Knesset. So that means, just so you understand the concept of this, that if, if I need to form a coalition. Let's say I've got 59 seats between the different groups that will come together and form a government with me. So for each of those groups, each of those parties, I got to make some kind of deal. Okay, you want this, you get this. You want that, okay, you get that. We make a deal. But I'm still short. I'm still short. Now here's a party. They only have four seats. They're the smallest. But if I can get them on my call, if I can get them to join, then I get the majority. <laughs> but hang on, you have completely different ideologies and views. How's it going to work? I use this analogy to try to illustrate things. Let's say, uh, if you remember back to boys playing baseball on the street, you, know, you get a bunch of the kids in the neighborhood, let's play a game. And one kid comes running to play. He's not a good player at all. You do not want him on your team because he's going to miss balls in the field and he's going to strike out when he's hitting but he's the kid who's got the baseball bats and the balls. So if you want to play, you got to bring him on your team. So that's often how it is with Israeli politics, that sometimes one, one party that gets minimal votes, they can decide who gets in or not, because they say, well, we'll go this way or go that way. All right, so let's, let's see how this breaks down. Okay, so blue and white, as I said, went down from 
33 seats actually in 2020. I said it could have been 36, 37. From 33 seats in 27, uh, they, they only want eight seats. You, you talk about a, a rapid and, and dramatic drop. Now, Yeshatid won 18 seats. So they're a power player, but nowhere near powerful enough to form a, a coalition yet. Then Shas, which is ultra-Orthodox right-wing and representing Sephardi Jews, they won nine seats. That's a strong showing. Yamina is right-wing nationalist led by Naftali Bennett. They won seven seats. UTJ, which stands for United Torah Judaism, is also ultra-Orthodox. That would be representing more Ashkenazi. They won seven seats. So, so far between ultra-Orthodox Jews, you've got 16 seats. Uh, Yisrael Beitenu, center-right, Russian-dominated, led by Avigdor Lieberman. They won seven seats. Labor, which is center-left, and, and for many years, they were the main rival to Likud. Now, now just to shelve itself. It, it was like Likud, Labor, Republican, Democrat. They were the two powerhouses. They just won seven seats. And by the way, blue and white labor even did better than some expected. That's how much they faded. New Hope, center right to right, won six seats. Joint List, which is left wing, representing Israeli, uh, Israeli Arabs, won six seats. Meretz, left wing, won six seats. They're probably the most left wing uh, Israeli party. Religious Zionism, another ultra-Orthodox party, this kind of breaking through for the first time, right wing, they won six seats. So you think between them and Shas and United Torah Judaism, that's a very, very powerful showing. Then UAL, the United Arab List, which is also known as Ram, which is Islamist center left to left wing, won four seats. So, so how do you compute this? So here, let me, let me keep going through my article with you and, and give you an analogy to help you try to figure out how to relate to this in terms of being here in America. How do you vote? And then we'll talk about the coalition numbers, all right? So here, I, I give you this scenario. You live here in America. You have four major parties. Now remember, 13 parties, one votes, one seats in the Knesset out of over 20 that ran. Let's say in America you just had four parties, four major parties. Party number one, strongly pro-life, but they advocate open borders and they're for strict gun control. Party number two, strongly pro-Israel, big on Second Amendment rights, but they're pro-abortion. Party number three, strong on marriage and family, but they oppose LGBT activism. They're also anti-Israel. And uh, party number four, excellent in the economy, national defense and national security, but radically pro-LGBT. So w- which, which party gets your vote? How do you vote? That's how Israeli voters need to decide. And now now here's, here's the other part with it. Let's, let's look at the, the coalition and, and see how it how it actually works out. Um, I'm going to scroll down the article. Doing the math with the current electoral results, a right-wing coalition of Likud, 30 seats, Shas, 9 seats, Yamina, 7 seats, UTJ, 7 seats, Religious Zionism, 7 seats. What's that equal? 60. 60. They are one short. You say, well, why doesn't another right-leaning party join their coalition? Nope, they will not work with Netanyahu. This was basically a referendum for them against Netanyahu. They will not work with Netanyahu. If someone else leading Likud, they'd work together to form a coalition easily, easily. Now, here's the other problem. Many of the people that voted for Netanyahu because they, they love his strong stance for security and, and Israel's international standing through Netanyahu and these other things, 
they know he's going to make deals with the ultra-Orthodox parties, and they will control immigration and other things in the nation and, and even try to, to push for more religious rules and, and more rights for the ultra-Orthodox, for example, for the men to just be supported so they can study all day and they won't have to serve in the military, etc. So there's a lot of resentment. Like, no, we don't want them governing our nation or, or sapping our finances to, to underwrite their religious values. So you have that tension there. So on the other side, there are not enough votes for the coalition. You basically come up with, with even less that would work together. So the question, the big questions being asked, will Netanyahu work with the leader of the Islamist party? What? I mean, you talk about a clash of values. Will he work with them because those four, four seats would push them over? But then there are others on the coalition say, if they're in, we're out. So where does it leave us at this point? Inconclusive. After four elections in two years, inconclusive. We'll unpack this more. Stay right here. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. Uh, Often on Thursdays, our phone lines are totally jammed with Jewish-related calls. We've got open lines today, so by all means, give us a call if you have a Jewish-related question of any kind, whether it's something where you differ with me or you just need more information or you've been digging and trying to get answers to your questions, 866-348-7884. Okay, so back to the Israeli elections just for one more moment. Prime Minister Netanyahu has served as prime minister longer than any prime minister in Israel, Israel's history. So since 1948 until today. So he's, he's passed previous prime ministers in terms of length of service. And he's often called Melech, king, by his supporters. Now, from the American viewpoint, especially the American evangelical viewpoint, Netanyahu is a hero. He's the man. He speaks before Congress and standing ovations, and, and he's powerful, and he's, he's the leader that's been raised up for the good of the country. Within Israel, he's a divisive figure. He's loved and he's hated, in ways similar to a Trump figure. By the way, interestingly, both of them married three times. Netanyahu years ago caught in an adulterous affair, and he's overcome all those things. He is a genius politician and, and in many ways, a tremendous leader, a strong leader. But he has, uh, he has divided the nation in a unique way because he's been such a powerful leader and he just has a lot of friends and he has a lot of enemies. So ultimately, on a certain level, even though Likud lost votes from the last time around, from 2020, they were way ahead of the competition. Last time they were neck and neck with the competition, this time way ahead, but they needed to be further ahead. They needed to be even further ahead. If, if they had just gotten, instead of 30 votes uh, or seats, 32 or 33, they could easily form the coalition now. They've got the parties. Boom. They'd have their right-wing coalition largely dominated by, by ultra-right, ultra-Orthodox Jews, and, and they'd be in. So the ultimate outcome is that Netanyahu fell short, even, even though he could say, hey, we're way ahead of everybody else. 
We got 30, Yesha Tid 17, 18 seats. They ultimately fell short. That's, that's the conclusion that you come to, that, that with all his campaigning and all his strength, he was not able to push things over the line for his party. And because of his divisive character, he's under corruption charges now. He wants laws in place that, that as a prime minister, you could not bring these charges against him. Others say he's not fit to be prime minister because of the corruption charges. Others say it's just a hit, scam against him, and so on. So it's, again, parallels we're, we're familiar with here. But in any case, right now things are inconclusive, which would mean a fifth election. You say, but I don't get it. Likud in blue and white made an agreement to form a coalition government. And, and Netanyahu would serve a couple years, and then Gantz would serve a couple years. Benny Gantz, the leader of Blue and White. That's, that was the arrangement. They made it. Well, one of my Israeli friends told me in a forum we did a few days back this past Sunday, he said the joke in Israel was that Benny Gantz was the only one in Israel thinking he was actually going to serve as prime minister. In other words, everyone figured once Netanyahu's in, Time to rotate. He's going to come up with something to collapse the government, and it's never going to happen. He will never give the power over to to Gantz. So that's what happened, because they had the coalition government formed. And, by the way, from the vantage point here in America, I was naive enough to think that it could actually happen. Many within Israel were deeply skeptical, and that's why Blue and White has taken such a hit. Because they look at Benny Gantz as blowing things. Like, here we are strong and, and, and pushing, and you form a coalition government. And, and first, I'll share with you, then you share with me. But I go first. It's, it's like, oh, who gets to use the car? for? I'll use it first, and you take off and don't come back with the keys. So that's why they took such a massive hit from, from what, 33 seats down to eight is because of that. <clears throat> Israel's like no other nation on the planet. You say, how do you pray? God, have your way. That's the only way I know how to pray for this. God, have your way. Do what's best in the long term for Israel and the region and for your namesake. That's how I pray. It is complicated, convoluted, complex. All right, 866-34-TRUTH. With that, we go to the phones. Let's start with Warren in Worcester, New York. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, uh, Dr. Brown. Uh, This question is really more about Passover. I mean, uh, um yeah, please. Passover is coming up. Yeah. Uh, so co- naturally, I'm reading through the Exodus account, and I'm just reading something that I'm trying to get a handle on. Um, in Exodus uh, uh, chapter seven, uh, God tells uh, Moses, uh, "Look, I've I've made you a god to Pharaoh." I says, "Natatika Elohim But that word Elohim, my understanding is, can't that mean? Judges, I mean, in Psalm 82, it says, like, where God stands in the congregation of God uh, in the midst of judges, he will judge. Elohim and, and also in Exodus, uh, other parts of Exodus, we see where uh, during civil matters, like uh, a person is brought before ha- Elohim, before the judges. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, 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 and I'm thinking that, well, Okay, well, obviously God didn't actually make Moses a god, and mm-hmm. but and nowhere in scripture, I, I, I don't know if anywhere in scripture is there that, that that Pharaoh ever really considered him to be a god. But God certainly did use Moses to pronounce judgment. So I'm wondering, 
Am I am I yeah, off yeah. track here? But it, no, it's 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 yeah. it's a great point, and I appreciate your reasoning through it. First, for Elohim to not mean God capital G or God's small G, there has to be something really strong in in context. So Elohim potentially can mean angels in a few passages, and then you mentioned the only passages in the Bible in Exodus and in Psalm eighty-two where Elohim could potentially mean judges. But even there, it's most likely of God standing in the council of the gods, small g, which is then transferred over to, uh, to earthly judges. But the reason that I wouldn't say I've, I've made you a judge, uh, first, to use Elohim there in, in, its, in that form, not Eloah, the singular form, but Elohim, uh, that wouldn't work. In other words, speaking about judges plural in, in, in Exodus, bring them before the judges, plural, then Elohim works. But to speak of it as an individual, that would be speaking of that individual as, as God. So that would be the first right. line against it. Um, the second thing is, if you take a look in, oh, let's see, in Exodus, the fourth chapter, where, where God is, is having Aaron be his uh, Moses spokesman because Moses says, I can't speak, and so on, right? So... Mm-hmm. Moses, Aaron becomes a, a mouth for Moses, and Moses becomes like God. So in other words, God's telling Moses something, so it's God to Moses, but now it's Moses to Aaron. So in that sense, Aaron is, is, is the mouthpiece, the prophet of Moses, and Moses is like the God to, to Aaron. It would be the same thing here. It's, I've made you as God to him, so I'm, I'm going to tell you something, and you're going to tell him on my behalf right. and carrying my authority. So that's, that's how it's used in that respect. It's, it's not, not in anything beyond that, you know, not that Moses would receive worship or adoration or recognition, but rather I'm the one declaring something to you on behalf of God, therefore having that function as God to you. And, and then you have to, by responding to me, to Moses, you are responding to God. That's that's the way it works out. That makes sense. Uh, um, but I'm thinking about back in uh, Psalm maybe 82 because I know that there's a, 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 a quite well, a, what I consider an aberrant understanding that uh, makes. Uh, I won't mention the name of the person, but uh, but that uh, tries to make the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just one of a plurality of gods and um, I don't know uh, yeah well just yeah Warren to clarify that and if you're if you're speaking of Dr. Heiser's uh, understanding of this we know that there are two different expressions about the uniqueness of God in the Hebrew Bible one is that that he alone exists in the category of deity right there is no God other than God and you have that for example in Isaiah 40 through 48 you have other passages that say that there is no God like him. Like in, in Exodus 15, who is like you among the gods. So in other words, there, other passages acknowledge that there are other so-called deities, that there are these other spiritual powers. Paul tells us in Corinthians that they are just demons. But there, there are these other powers, these other spiritual beings, these other spiritual entities that the people worship as gods, but they're not really gods because they themselves are created. So you can say it two different ways. One, 
you are the only God. There is no other God but you. Or among all those claiming to be gods, you are the only true God. Hence, El Elyon, the most high God. All these other cheap competitors do not do, do not stand in the same class as the Most High God, who is the only real God. All these others are just spiritual powers masquerading as gods and being worshipped as gods. But as for Elohim there, Psalm 82 is best understood as originally having that spiritual backdrop of God ruling over the heavenly council and then applied to God and the judges on earth who will die just like men. Hey, I appreciate the discussion, and you're cracking at the Hebrew there. 866-34-TRUTH is the number to call. We come back, more of your Jewish-related calls. Stay right here. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Pray, friends, for Israel. After a fourth election in two years, no conclusive results, no clear path to a majority government for any of the parties involved. And as much as Likud Netanyahu's party led the way in seats in the Knesset, it falls short of what it would have needed to get to easily form a coalition government. So right now, uncertainty, it's got to be difficult. It paralyzes the nation and moving forward decisively as it would want to. A time like this, it's always good to pray for God to open hearts and minds for people to look to him. Hey, friends, Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Brown. It is Thoroughly Jewish Thursday. God willing, 11 months from now, we'll be going to Israel. That's, we've got our tour set up. We, we moved it all the way out of 2021 after having changed it a few times already in 2020. We moved it all the way out of 2021 to end of February, beginning of March in, in uh, 2022. So we'll be talking more about that in the weeks ahead but God willing, by then, everything will be open wide for travel. There won't be any issues. Many have been waiting, uh, registered for the trip. We've been waiting together. So can't wait to have the joy and privilege of walking the land of Israel together with you. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's just take a look at one verse in Exodus, the fourth chapter. This is just further data for Warren, who had just called and asking about in what sense did God make Moses a god to Pharaoh? So it says this, verse 14, when Moses makes yet another excuse, the anger of Adonai was kindled against Moses. So he said, in fact, Aaron, the Levite is your brother. I know that he can speak well. Moreover, he's on his way to meet you. When he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your, with your mouth and with his and teach you what to do. He will be your spokesman to the people that he may act as a mouthpiece for you, and it will be as if you were as God for him. All right, so God will tell Moses, here are the words. Now you go tell Aaron. So it would be as if God to Moses is now Moses to Aaron. He says God to Aaron saying, here are the words you are to speak, and then Aaron speaks them. 
All right, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Russ in Salt Lake City, Utah. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Hey, this is Russ, station manager out here in Utah. Thanks Good to for hear. being on. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having us on your great station there. Praise God. Thanks for coming since 2008. Um, hey, the Lord has me uh, uh, speaking at a church this Sunday on Matthew 21, 1 through 17, the triumphal entry. And mm-hmm. I just I would call you to ask your thoughts on the, the role that the temple had for prayer in that when Jesus came into the temple area there, um, riding on a donkey, you know, a, a kind of a idea of a king of peace in a sense, um, that he goes in there and he overturns the tables and he says, you've turned, that my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. I'm just wondering how much of prayer were they also neglecting, um, do you think, back in that time? Um, do you think it was an equal kind of a uh, of an outrage? Because I wonder too if this is also a good a good uh, trigger point for us as as evangelical Christians to to elevate prayer to our church um, settings. You know, to, to make that a priority. Yeah, yeah, I love that. So let let me let me respond to this uh, kind of in reverse order. Number one, absolutely, we should use this as a reminder that the temple was to be a house of prayer and to be a house of prayer for all nations. That was the ultimate vision that's spoken uh, of this house, Isaiah 56, etc. So that's the first thing to say, hey, the temple in in God's view was to be a house of prayer. How much more should our own gatherings, our house gatherings, our, our church services be dominated by prayer? How much should prayer play a major role in our midst? So I, I think just on a preaching point, that's a strong point to make. The second thing is, was prayer being neglected? We have no record of that. In other words, there's no document saying that that was taking place. But you can assume that if you were getting involved just in formalistic religion or just outward practices or zeal for a form but not for the reality of God, that prayer would be neglected. So I would say that you could just ask this question. You say, this is a fair question to ask ourselves. But could it be that there was a shell of what was supposed to be? And could it be that there was a shell because of the absence of that devotion to God? We see, for example, in Isaiah, the first chapter, that, that uh, God says, even, even when you raise your hands in prayer, I'm not going to listen because your hands are filled or are, are stained with blood. So he's saying you're going through all the motions, like Amos 5. You're super religious. You're going through all the motions, but the heart substance, the connection with God is gone. So God hates hypocritical religion. And then last point, which is just a slight tangent, uh, but the idea of him saying you've made it into a den of robbers, and then he goes and cleanses the temple. What's fascinating is when you go back to that passage in Jeremiah 7, what it means in context there was... God's saying you commit all these sins, you commit adultery and idolatry and murder, and then you come into my temple and think, oh, we're safe here because this is the temple of the Lord. And he says, does this become like a den of robbers to you? Meaning, den of robbers would be a cave where robbers would go and hide. They'd do their dirty work, and then they'd go and hide. And, wow. and he's saying, so you think that that's what you do here in the temple, that you go do what you do, and you come in here, it's like a den of robbers to you? But I see Jesus then takes that one step further 
and says you're actually doing what robbers do in the temple. You're actually doing your dishonest work in the temple. Something I didn't even realize until I did my Jeremiah commentary years ago. It's like, ah, he's taking the polemic one step further. So that's just my little extra two cents there. But by all means, preach on prayer based on that, 100%. May I ask one more quick follow-up on this? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, and also, thank you for that. Um, the children that are mentioned, how they're like the cheering section in this in this narrative here. Um, you know, they, they're Hosanna to the Son of David. So I guess there was a place in the temple where the kids were were welcome to kind of hang out or something. I just that kind of caught me as, as in my observation. Yeah, they, there uh, there is not right there. There is not a specific, to my knowledge, place that would have been for children. Rather, you had within the temple, of of course, the inner court and the outer court, and then you had going outside where women could go so far, Gentiles could go so far. So Gentiles would be stopped at a certain point, women at another point, and then men. So as long as you're a male, you could you could get in, uh, you know, close in with, with any other Israelite male that was clean. I'm not aware of anything that existed, uh, nor have I really thought about that before. But I, yeah, I'm not aware of anything that existed in that way that was just for children. And then isn't it just kind of amazing how then Jesus, just after he does what he's been called to do, which is so intense, he's healing people, he's cleaning out all these robber guys and stuff, and then he just leaves. It just says, you know, he says, yes, have you guys not read what it says about out of the mouth of babes and sucklings that is brought perfect praise and leaving them he went out of the city to bethany and lodged there it's like he just he just goes in very very with a a purpose and he he just he just does what he does and then he goes back to bethany a couple miles away and there's no record of anything else at that moment except for the fact that the chief priests or the the uh, chief priests and the scribes they were indignant and so that word indignant i got to dive into that word to see what that means you know did that that really stir them up to say like, hey, we're going to, we're going to get, you know, I, I wonder, I'll have to dive into that some more as to see what was happening. Yeah. And I don't, and, and Russ, I, I don't know that there's much more to the word beyond indignant as we see it, but I mean, there is that, that outrage and how could you and how dare you? But yeah, this was not just an emotional outburst that Yeshua had. This was, this was the son doing what the father gave him to do with all of his heart as opposed to just, I can't take it anymore. No, it's, there is a holy anger, a righteous anger that rose up in him and on which he acted. Hey, Russ, may the Lord bless you as you bring this word and may many be touched in Salt Lake City. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to David in Los Angeles. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Jessica Brown, uh, thank you for so much for taking my call. I just had a quick question on uh, Matthew 538 and 543 mm-hmm. and regarding um were the pharisees or teachers at that time purporting um a way the way they use eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth and also love your neighbor and hate your enemies because there isn't a passage in the in the in the torah that i found that where it says to love your neighbor and hate your enemy so i was wondering is that right. something that they were just teaching or is that so jesus was trying to change that teaching, the correct right. teaching. Right. So there, uh, you're absolutely right in saying that there's no express Torah command saying, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. So where does that come from? Because other things came from interpretations of the Torah or misinterpretations. So 
there are two separate issues. First, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth, which has to do with retaliation. Um, in developing traditions of the Pharisees, which then became the traditions of the rabbis, that was interpreted in a non-literal way. So it would be a matter of monetary payment that you were entitled to. For example, let's say someone only had one hand and now you're going to chop off their hand, that would be a harsher punishment than would be intended because now they, they don't have any hands. It's the same if they only had one good eye, now you, you knock out the one good eye, they're completely blind. So there, there were these various arguments that were raised, ultimately rabbinic interpretation, that said that what's called lex talionis, the, the law of retaliation, the eye for eye, uh, applied in a monetary way, that these would be fines, etc. So, in ter- but in terms of the reality, Jesus is not saying you can't defend yourself. It's not so about Christians going to war. Rather, it's the issue of, of personal retaliation or of my right against you. So his first thing is if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other mm-hmm. also. So right cheek, you presume right-handedness. Right cheek, that's a backhanded slap if I, if I slap you on the right cheek facing you. And we know from developing rabbinic tradition that we have in writing a couple hundred years later that you were entitled to a double fine. It was doubly embarrassing if someone gave you a, a backhanded slap. Jesus saying, forget that. Forget the personal retaliation or getting what you can get under the law. Just let them strike the other cheek. As for love your neighbor, hate your enemy, you do find a reference to that in Dead Sea Scroll teaching. So perhaps among the Essenes that was taught. And then in the Old Testament, something like the end of Psalm 139, don't I hate those who hate you with a perfect hatred, Lord. So either passages like that from the Old Testament or teaching uh, that we find in the Dead Sea Scrolls supporting hate your enemy. But that was not a Pharisaic teaching, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. There's no record in Pharisaical literature that would point in that direction. So it would be other Jewish traditions and or verses. It's the line of fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, welcome to Thoroughly Jewish Thursday on the Line of Fire. Hey, less than 30 minutes from now, so 4.15 Eastern Time, less than 30 minutes from now, we will be back on YouTube on the Ask Director Brown YouTube channel, and there we'll be taking your questions for 45 minutes to an hour on all subjects under the sun, basically, and you just can type them in. You don't have to call or anything. So that'll be starting 4.15 Eastern Time, and a reminder If you're listening on radio or by podcast, just uh, so you know, we do a live video stream of the broadcast every day, just waving as I do that, uh, on Facebook and on YouTube. So that's Ask Dr. Brown, ASKDR Brown Facebook, ASKDR Brown YouTube, and you can watch the show there afterwards. So if podcast is better, just listening, great. But if you want to watch and often we're playing video clips and putting graphics up, uh, you can enjoy that experience also. All right, uh, we go to Jonathan in Jackson, Mississippi. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Shalom, Dr. Brown. Shalom. I was wanting to talk to you about some 
reasons I think that there's been such a spike in anti-Semitism in recent years. All right. Do you have, have you ever heard? Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. Okay. Have you ever heard of a documentary about Hitler called The Greatest Story Never Told? Uh, I may have heard it, but I don't know anything about it. Yeah, well, I'm, I've always been one of these people that, like, wants to hear both sides of, 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 of history or whatever or people's different accounts of what's the standard version of everything. So I actually watched this documentary, which was about six and a half hours long. Mm. And, I mean, it just paints a completely different picture than we've been taught about Hitler and makes him look like a good guy, you know. Mm. And mm. I'm afraid that young people that are impressionable may be watching things like this and, uh, you know, also buying into the people that talk about the Rothschild and Zionism being at the root right. of all the evils in the world. And, and, and you combine all this stuff that's out there on the Internet together and people buy into a false narrative that, that all Jewish people are uh, out to uh, control the world or something crazy exactly. like that. You know? Right, right. And, so, so, so the deal is, uh, aside from the fact that there is massive, massive scholarship on the Holocaust by world-class historians and, and, and scholars and analysts uh, from every field, and there is massive consensus in terms of the unprecedented evil of the Holocaust and the events leading to it and, and Hitler's personal evil and the demented nature of what the Nazis were doing, etc. <clears throat> You're always going to have these conspiracy theories out there when it comes to the Jewish people and people trying to paint a picture that, well, the Jews were so immoral, the Jews were so bad, the Jews were so ungodly, that, that there's very little else for Hitler to do, and they were really parasites that had to, be, had to be exterminated. So these sicko views, these despicable views, are unfortunately always going to be there. And what you mentioned is very, very true, that folks just go to the Internet now, and they can't tell the difference. Someone's just exploring the Internet they can't tell the difference between some documentary that's been put together slickly and puts these quotes and stats up there like, wow, that's so persuasive. It's like, hang on, hang on. That wouldn't even make a footnote in an academic book. It's so ridiculous. It's so idiotic. You know, I've put out videos debunking things that it's not, it's not a matter of argument. You know, for, for example, if, if, I, if I hold up my, my cell phone here, it's not an argument. This is not an elephant. This is not a tarantula. This is not a cobra. This is not an automobile. This is a phone. I have, I have put out videos debunking things just as ridiculous. And then people will go, oh, no, you need to see this video. Oh, no, you're wrong on this. You're, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I think this is unreal. It's, it's scary, actually. And when it comes to the Jews, Jews always get blamed. Jews always get scapegoated. You need to, to find fault with somebody. The Jews are the convenient fall guys. It's been like that for centuries. So it's, it's no surprise. And when you have a, a rise in these ridiculous documentaries, uh, these Jew bashing documentaries, some of them, some we expose in my book, Christian Antisemitism, um, 
when you have the rise in conspiracy theories, oh, you're not being told this. And who's behind it all? Go back to the Jews. Yeah, it becomes very, very dangerous. And, and look, to be totally candid with you, uh, when, when we debunk these things on the air, when we put out videos debunking the anti-Semites, we get blasted by the anti-Semites. So you understand, Jonathan, I'm not, I'm not living for you in approval, but I use this to, to point something out. Our average videos get between 95 and 98% thumbs up, even on controversial moral issues, because the vast majority of people, the 125,000, something, whatever, subscribers that we have on YouTube and those who watch, they agree. They're, they're for us. So they like what I'm saying. But when I put out a video explicitly exposing a Christian anti-Semite or, or some other anti-Semite, suddenly it shifts. And in many cases, we get maybe 60% disapproval and 40% thumbs up because we're, we're poking a bear. We're hitting a nerve. So we, we just have to keep getting truth out. We have to keep getting truth out tirelessly, relentlessly, keep getting truth out, knowing there's always going to be deception until Jesus returns but we'll do our best to get the truth out. Thanks for calling, and, and pray, Jonathan, that people that fall into deception will have their eyes open. And, and another reminder, if you read Christian Antisemitism, my newest book, and have profited by it, were helped by it, enjoyed it, please post a review or a rating on Amazon.com, simply because once we expose Pastor Stephen Anderson's antisemitism and misinformation in his Marching to Zion video, that some of his followers have come after us on Amazon with one-star reviews, just attacking me, attacking the book, obviously not having read it or even understanding what the contents are. Um, and somehow Amazon allows that to happen. So for the sake of truth, not for public opinion, but for the sake of truth, if you've appreciated the book and actually read it, please do post a review or rating on Amazon.com. Uh, let's go over to J... We're not going there. Let's go to Mary in Des Moines, Iowa. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Shalom. Shalom. Um, in Genesis 22, verse 7, both Isaac and Abraham refer to uh, Isaac says, "Where's here's the wood, but where's the lamb? And uh, Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. Mm-hmm. And um, John the Baptist talks about Jesus as a lamb, and in Revelation, he's seen as the lamb slain. Yep. And um, so, but then in... Um, Verse 13, a ram is provided, and they also referred to a burnt offering. So was Jesus a burnt offering? And how would understand that God provided the ram rather than a lamb? Right. Expecting it. Yes, yeah, so, so excellent questions. Number one, the fact that they, they speak of a, a lamb that's obviously you know, one, one candidate for a, for a sacrifice, not the only, but, but one candidate, and that's what's spoken of. But conspicuously, it's a ram, not a lamb, which would lead you to say, whatever happened to that lamb? So it's just another one of these subtle threads that God plants in Scripture. Then when you go to Exodus 12, when God sees the blood of the lamb, he passes over the people, and then the Messiah in Isaiah 53 going uh, to his death as a lamb to the slaughter. And then John the Immerser, as you said in, in John one twenty nine, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the picture of the Lamb who was slain in Revelation 5 or the Song of Moses and the Lamb in Revelation 15. And 
So that picture there. Uh, so for sure, for sure, there is a divine seed planted there about the lamb that God would provide. And then he becomes bigger and bigger in importance as we go through Scripture and we see that the Messiah is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As Messiah being a burnt offering, that could be debated in in that uh, a burnt offering was given wholly up to God. In other words, it would burn on the altar and it would not be eaten. You wouldn't save any of it to eat. Otherwise, some would go to the priest, some would go to, to the person offering it. In some cases, they would eat some of the sacrifice. The burnt offering went wholly up to God. So was Jesus, in that sense, a burnt offering? Well, he was, he was an atoning sacrifice, right? That would, would be the key thing. He, he could be looked at as a sin offering. Uh, he could be, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5, he became sin for us. That could be understood as a sin offering. He's seen as our Passover sacrifice, Messiah, our Passover, meaning our Passover lamb in 1 Corinthians 5. And then in Isaiah 53, he's referred to as an asham, which is a guilt offering. So you have those different images. You have, uh, you have a sin offering, Passover lamb, guilt offering. If you want to argue that he also fulfills burnt offering, then the place to go for that is Hebrews 10, referring back to Psalm 40. In Hebrews 10, referring back to Psalm 40, where the psalmist says, burnt offering and sin offering, you didn't want, ultimately you wanted me, and that's fulfilled through the Messiah. He's the one that comes and fulfills all those. Then you could say, yes, he fulfills that as well, or ultimately all the offerings find their fulfillment in him. Hey, appreciate the question. Friends, join us in 15 minutes on YouTube, on the Ask Dr. Brown YouTube channel. God bless. Another program powered by the Truth Network.